there is a characteristic information density in our sentences, and if it exceeds a particular threshold, then you are definitely narrowing the audience. There may be a few people who like it, a few people who hate it, but by and large, it's a waste of money. But as you said that, what struck me, is this communication with shareholders by any chance? Can you name a product something that the sales force and the bosses can actually mention to customers with a straight face, without chuckling, without having to say, well, the marketing guys did this. What I've come to call philosophy with a patina of art. Yeah, what I sent you was a segment of the chapter on emergence as a force in business. Now, emergence is one of the complex forces. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast. I'm Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett, episode number 34. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. Can you imagine it's been 34 episodes? No, that's a little bit mystifying. On the other hand, it's been quite fun, so I'm not complaining. So for those of you who have been listening to this, thank you. Uh, really grateful for that, for your attention. Please comment if you'd like, but it's wonderful that you're there. So let's do it. What is in our cart today when it comes to the cartoon? A cartoon of the week um, has a woman holding up her book at Bailey Books and a guy standing behind her. And she says, you may know our author from his previous bestseller. Hang with me while I try to read this. Leveraging transformation disruption at the intersection of robust, scalable intervention and next level blue sky deliverables, colon, unpacking hyperlocal paint points for the customer centric vision ecosystem. But today he's discussing his latest book, Buzzwords, Jargon and Lingo, Confuse Your Way to the Top. <laughs> That's a very good one. <laughs> I, I have a hunch we've all been there or been with people we felt were trying to confuse their way to the top. Yeah, well, I think there's definitely information density that is desired, mm-hmm. and that always gets in the way of legibility and understandability. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the whole idea of having a subtitle to books is really interesting. I don't think that was the norm some decades ago, but it is now. Mm-hmm. It almost becomes like a tweet before you're done. But also, of course, the contrast that his first book is all buzzwords and the second one is uh, why it shouldn't work and it does why you should use all those buzzwords to confuse your way to the top you know where it frustrates me is uh, in back into old days when you and i were selling together i used to have a mantra which is the more buzzwords somebody uses the less they understand what they're saying and (laughs) there are a lot of times i've found that to be true you know that a high number of buzzwords indicates somebody not thinking about what they're saying. And I think that's, it may not be that they don't, couldn't understand it, right? but it does indicate to me very often that people are just rattling out of their brain the phrases they've heard before, not having thought about your question or your comment and what's important here. I think in marketing content, my observation is that that's because you're trying to say too much, mm-hmm. that you have one paragraph, 50 words, 10 words, however many, and, and you can't 
decide what the tip of the arrow is and you're trying to just stuff as much as you can in that, I think that's because you don't trust the audience to get there. And that makes the prose just difficult to read. It's too dense. People just tune out. So usually my, my process is to do that, but then step back and say, does this read like normal English does? Can people actually read it in one go and not forget what they started out with? I think the other way it lays on in marketing content is that some people do that to defend against competition. So, you know, I know sometimes I'm writing and I'm like, okay, but somebody could complain about this for this. So I need to add this and then I need to add that. And all of a sudden it's as impenetrable. I mean, nobody's going to understand it. Right. Because it's so layered with all this stuff trying to make it the perfect statement. We all have to accept the fact that there are no perfect statements. Yeah. There is a characteristic information density Mm -hmm. in our sentences. And if it exceeds a particular threshold, then you are definitely narrowing the audience who's going Mm -hmm. to read it and enjoy it rather than tune it out. So I think it necessarily requires some level of sparsity. And if you Mm -hmm. don't have that much space to tell the story, then you Mm -hmm. have to change how much of that story you're really trying to tell. I have talked with an author who wrote a book and an academic publisher published it. And they were very unhappy with him because the book was too understandable in common language. And I think it it is interesting because I do think that we have some areas where people believe expertise is shown by how uh, complicated, yeah, how complicated your writing is, rather Mm -hmm. than expertise being shown by you understand the field so well, you can simplify and make it understandable. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you're writing a book, I think those are considerations. Mm-hmm. And in that context, there's also a question of when is it appropriate to have a lot of buzzwords? I mm-hmm. think if you have a 300-page book and you're trying to talk, for example, about the mm-hmm. state of technology today, mm-hmm. well, you can't avoid but to have buzzwords because you got to cover mm-hmm. AI and robotics and IoT and biotech. Yeah. And all of these are like pretty dense areas. But you also have 300 pages to devote to it. Mm-hmm. If you have like three paragraphs, then at a minimum, you have to warn people that says, hey, guys, this buzzword soup, as I call it, because I have actually done what we just talked about, is mm-hmm. really necessary. Trust me. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to be obtuse. I'm just trying to make mm-hmm. sure all the bases are covered. Mm-hmm. And then we have time to go discuss in detail. But consider this table of contests sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So there was an article by Dave Trott that you forwarded. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that. All right. I'll, I'll be doing a quick summary. The title is Critics Are Not the Audience. And in it, Dave Trott talks, uh, as he does, he does this really interesting kind of storytelling, one sentence at a time approach his thing. He talks about a uh, woman had a dream about vampires, uh, wasn't a writer, but wrote up a story about it. And then publishers didn't want it. Uh, One publisher took it. Eventually there was an auction. Well, which is interesting because what that means is publishers did want it. If there's an auction for a book and she got paid and it turned out to be Twilight, which of course is a massive major bestseller. And then another woman read that book and decided to add BSDM into it and ended up writing Fifty Shades of Grey and suffered the same struggle. And Dave's observation is that through the process, both women received a lot of feedback from critics telling them why it wouldn't work, why what they were doing wouldn't work. And in fact, the books ended up being freaking bestsellers and 
you know, in a sense, the rest is history. And, you know, he offers a point of critics are not your audience. Your audience is your audience. And what you need to care about is what matters to your audience. And I think that's where it goes. But I was interested because, you know, we were talking earlier, as you and I approach these things, because I come from an ad agency background, much more involved with advertising. I read a guy like Dave Trot one way, you hear it another way. And it's always really interesting when you and I play off of each other's how we hear it. So what were your thoughts when it first came on? Well, uh, I don't think he's using the best examples <laughs> to make the point. <laughs> the examples really don't interest me personally, so I don't resonate with them. But I understand the threat. I understand that the audience is not the critics. And, and of course, there's a reason we call them the media, because they're the medium to the actual target audience. They're in between, right? And therefore, when we talk to the media, including influencers, including critics and bloggers and such, we need to keep in mind that we are really communicating with the target audience through this medium. Mm -hmm. So that has to be paramount in our head. And it's also part of the media training that we advocate that mm -hmm. spokespeople go through is to always remember mm -hmm. who they're really talking to. My initial reaction was this is yet another how dumb can you get kind of an mm -hmm. article. And maybe the solution, maybe the problem isn't that the critics are like that. Maybe the problem is that the actors and the managers and their bosses are mm -hmm. not in fact grokking who they're talking to. And maybe they're not confident about the solutions that they're providing. What did you think? Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think the minute we look at this, you have to say there's a certain survivor bias to it. In other words, we have two novels that went through this and the two authors stuck to their guns, if you will, and did fabulously well. My guess is during that same period of time, another 30 authors stuck to their guns and did okay, but somehow those books lacked the magic to be these massive takeoffs. And then another 500 authors, of which half of them stuck to their guns, failed. And you know, one of the problems in survivor bias is that everybody else is doing the same thing. But we always say, well, every company needs to have an executive committee on the environment. But, you know, and then once we dig into it, we find out all these failed companies had executive committees on the environment, too. Or we find out the only companies that have executive committees on the environment are those who can afford them. In other words, only after you reach a certain high level of atmospheric success can you afford to do that. So survivor bias is tricky. And I think that's, you know, a flaw here. Mm -hmm is that this re reports those because in advertising, my thought is what he's observing is as an ad guy, you very often send ideas off to clients and clients tend to deal with ideas as a committee. And so what you get is committee feedback. So we once set off a talent who was just perfect for the job, really, really good, but he had a husky voice and the client came back and said, we don't like him. He has a husky voice. That's all wrong. Now being in TV, Dusky voices are brilliant because we find them interesting. We find accents interesting. That stuff adds interest, so we'll listen to it. And so in the ad business, you are continually confronted with client committee decisions that say, oh, no, we have to make it bland. We want the casting to be from Casting Central. We can't say anything that's provocative. We can't say anything unusual. We just have to make it bland. And what we know in the ad business is if it's bland, nobody will hear it. And so we fight that problem. The survivor bias problem there, though, is, oh, my God, there's a lot of advertising that's extraordinarily interesting and complete failure, too. Right, and most exactly. of it you know, shows up at the Cannes Film Festival to get awards for advertising. 
and is never put on TV because the client goes, oh, no, we're not putting that ad on air. Yeah, exactly. It's tough. It is tough. I agree. Side comment. I also want to point out and applaud Dave because he's telling stories about stories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, those are, and that's definitely superb, really nicely done. Yeah, he does that really well. I think your observation that is an accurate one is that what he's talking about is a failure of management on the client side, because clients should know better than to do that. And what I would offer with that is as a guy who's done been in that business, should is not the same as will. And yeah. uh, as some you know, people in the ad business, we run into a lot of feedback of, oh, no, we could never say what we are. We have to kind of be mealy mouse so nobody ever figures out what we do that's unique. So the problem is real. <laughs> yes, the problem is real. <laughs> well, speaking of who is the audience and who's not, Johnson & Johnson changed their logo after 130 years. Mm -hmm. I looked it up because I thought it would be fun. And <laughs> the year they created the logo was 1887 and it turns out it was the year the first groundhog day was observed <laughs> <laughs> so they basically woke up to the same logo for 130 years so maybe that's how long he was in his uh, in his uh, uh, situation before he got out but they got out they now have a new it, logo <laughs> it, i can't i didn't see it was bill murray on the committee that came up with the new logo <laughs> that's right Punxsutawney. <laughs> yeah really Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I loved, uh, you, you pulled the quote, and uh, you and I looked at it from Johnson & Johnson, you know, what they say. And I'm going to read just a little bit, because I think listeners need to have a feel for oh, what you this do. is. Absolutely. This it's is a one of This is one of five paragraphs. The new Johnson & Johnson brand identity builds on the company's legacy. All right, that's all fine. While also, uh-oh, modernizing key elements to showcase healthcare innovation in a way that's inclusive and brings the company's warm, caring nature to life. I have to say, I think we just got fed a bunch of buzzword soup. The second half of that was entirely buzzwords based on what companies should be doing right now and not at all for me about Johnson & Johnson or anything unique and interesting and important about them. Yeah, you know, for a company that's been around for that long, that sort of a presence to the market mm -hmm. was really surprising to me. Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, changing the logo after so many years could not have been an easy decision. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So my immediate question was, what was the real motivation to do this? Mm -hmm. It turns out that the motivation is the company is trying to focus in two distinct areas, one medications and one medical technology and devices. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably led to some kind of a boardroom discussion that maybe we need a different presence in the market to signify that move. Okay. I'm not too this sure a change in logo is the best solution to that business need, but I can imagine how that could become a topic. Okay, so here's a question for you. Because it, my take is, as a consumer marketing guy, this makes no sense. Nobody's going to care. It's not going to make a difference to customers. It just It's just a non-entity, by and large. And there may be a few people who like it and a few people who hate it, but by and large, it's a waste of money. But as you said that, what struck me, is this communication with shareholders by any chance? Because could this be the J&J &J board going to shareholders to say, look, we've reinvented the company because we have a new logo. And sadly, I do think shareholders get sucked in by that stuff. That's an excellent point. 
And as we've discussed on this podcast, we gradually have shifted into at least three branches of marketing, and that's customer marketing, investor marketing, and employee recruitment marketing. Yeah. Those are three different audiences with mm-hmm. three different requirements, right? Mm-hmm. Customers yeah. want good price performance, good quality. Investors want good return on investment, good margin. Employees want a place that they feel good about and has purpose and all. Mm-hmm. And managing all of that is really difficult. Mm-hmm. And you may be right. Maybe that was kind of the overriding driver. Well, because there's nothing in this statement. Now, now, I have a son who went to art school, and I'm around artists a lot. And having been around art schools, my take on this initially was, given the writing, this is what's happening in art school. We have a unimportant, uninteresting visual thing backed up with extensive writing and what I've come to call philosophy with a patina of art. <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, when I went to SAIC in Chicago and my son started there, we went in and parents night and now my wife's an artist and we both have studied art and are friends with many. And they said, well, here's our special artist who graduated from SAIC and here's his work. And the work was visually uninteresting, just completely visually uninteresting, but it was backed up with page after page after page about the philosophy of white because white was the topic of it. And the work was, I mean, as artwork, not artwork. It was maybe decorative, maybe just something the guy likes doing. I don't care. But I, it was nothing compelling where you'd go, look at that. Mm. There was all this writing behind it. So I think at some level, what I see that we they ended up getting at Johnson & Johnson is philosophy with a patina of a logo. And it's not that good. So really related question is, okay, let's assume all of these line up and there's a reason whether or not you agree that was kind of decision. Mm-hmm. Why would the text look and sound the way it is? What is the reason behind that? The Why not just in the, in the, be a little bit more? Yeah, like the, like the paragraph that you read, and there are like four or five other paragraphs like that that are a little bit out there. They're kind of a little well, bit of a Jay Peterman catalog. About, let me give an example for our listeners, such as the paragraph on the ampersand. The new ampersand captures a caring human nature it now presents itself as a more globally recognizable symbol and represents the openness of the brand as well as the connections that bring the company's purpose to life. Yeah, I have no idea why they would write that. I mean, all of that in an ampersand? Yeah. Well, I think that they, I don't know what happens here, but, I, you know, the PR department feels like, well, if there's a logo change, we got to make a PR event out of it, perhaps. This is the kind of thing I've seen. So they believe they need to make it into an event. So they do all this stuff trying to make it an event. Unfortunately, what I see here is nobody in the company ever asking the hard, the important question. In a way, the dumb question, does this matter? Why are we doing this? Right. Why should we be writing this from our company? Because in many ways, it's an embarrassment for the company that they wrote this. And some people at the executive level should be concerned that they wrote this and put it out there. I don't know if they are. I don't know if they will be, but that's what I think is they should be concerned. And I uh, ask them the same questions you and I are asking of it. And I don't know if that happened. Bob Lutz, who worked in GM for a long time, talked about how you know he would see executives turn off at some point and stop using their brains. And that he saw that very often at General Motors. And 
you got to wonder if this is one of those points in time where the executives turned off their brains and said, okay, it's going great. Check it off on our checklist. Well, actually one of our checklists when we do a branding project is whether the boss will use it (laughs) 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 and whether the boss will use it and can use it with a straight face. You know, when you name a product, can you name a product something that the sales force and the bosses can actually mention to customers with a straight face, without chuckling, without having to say, well, the marketing guys did this. And, you know, those are important checklists. (laughs) Now, I want to get back to our complexity thread. Yes. Because God knows marketing is not easing up on that topic. No. And it continues to be endless. I think that's one of the problems in marketing is that it is endless. I used to joke that for many professions, if you just work two more hours, three more hours, four more hours, stay up until 3 a.m., at some point you will be done. Mm -hmm. Marketing, you will never be done. It is absolutely endless. You can always think of 15 other things that you could do. Mm-hmm. And that has led to an article that I read that you wrote, or maybe it's part of the book that you're writing. So let's let's take us through that, if you don't mind. Yeah, what I sent you was a segment of the chapter on emergence as a force in business. Now, emergence is one of the complex forces. One of the ways that scientists talk about emergence is that if you look at what's called a, a flock of starlings, which technically is called a murmuration, it's a great word. I love the word. But if you look at a flock of starlings and you watch them fly, you know, every bird flies in a random pattern, but they make these incredible moving organic shapes. And most people have probably seen video of these. And they're very, very cool. What scientists have decided is that those shapes emerge. And the reason they emerge is that each bird is an independent agent and flies according to some set of, let's call it rules or behaviors. And when they fly, according to those behaviors, these things emerge from that, and it's called self-organization. Of course, now I move to thinking about humans because we also have a animal start and we have instinctive behaviors. And in fact, humans self-organize quite a bit. And I ran across a passage from G.K. Chesterton, who's a, a bit of a curmudgeonly British author from the early 1900s I happen to really enjoy. And he talks about how the household is a brilliant self-organization in society. And yes, there are households that don't work and households that do work. But fundamentally, if we didn't have the household, the way we'd have to take care of raising children would be hiring all these people and building these elaborate, complicated bureaucratic systems trying to do it. And I think we have plenty of evidence to show that that would be a miserable failure. So in fact, the fact that humans rely on this self-organizing entity, which is the household, has been a very effective thing in society for several millennia. I mean, as far back as we know. So then that led me to the question of how should we be using self-organization in marketing? Because when it's used well or when it's helpful, it eliminates the cost of layers and layers of specific management and bureaucracy. And it enables people on the front lines to take action, to make do things right, And the company, in a sense, is able to rely on the individual good judgment that individuals tend to have and benefit from it. So the question is, where can we do that in marketing? The fact that marketing is endless makes this a really good idea. (laughs) Because (laughs) (laughs) Because it allows you to get more out of what is 
mm-hmm. by definition, limited and inadequate resources, mm-hmm. right? I don't know a single marketing department who isn't under pressure mm-hmm. to do more than they are doing, and they just don't have the resources to do it. So mm-hmm. really, uh, regardless of what the numerator is, the denominator needs to be smaller so you can have more efficiency and you can get yes. more out mm-hmm. of less, right? So that's the name of the game. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. if you could, in fact, have a self-organizing situation where everybody can deliver their maximum impact mm-hmm. without friction, that really would be wonderful. So to me, this mm-hmm. kind of signals the requirement or the benefit of having a new organizational structure, new management structure that enables mm-hmm. that. So the question mm-hmm. is, how do you do that? Yeah, and that is difficult because we still have to get certain things done. We still have executives that are beholden to boards, and rightly so. It's not to suggest a free-for-all. The point is, where could we say, instead of building a bureaucracy, let's rely on self-organizing units? Mm -hmm. So I mentioned in U.S. education right now, I think we're missing here. Because over the last 40 years, an incredible overload of administrative bureaucracy has been added into schools. Because the natural self-organizing level in schools is the classroom. Hmm. The hmm. teacher knows the kids. The teacher's there. The teacher can make good decisions by actually knowing what's happening. Whereas some legislator saying every kid needs to learn to the derivative of this, that, or something, um, that doesn't help because that legislator has no idea who the kids are. And uh, there's no evidence that that's beneficial. But In America, that has happened. We now have schools where the teachers are barely allowed to teach and use their instincts and judgment. Imagine how much potential we could free up by relying on them. So I naturally start with stores, for example. So if you're a consumer goods person, uh, you are a company that has stores. Stores are a natural self-organizing unit. So one part is look for unit. The other part is to look at the rules because... There has to be some degree of expectation for a store. So if you're going to rely on stores, you have to both give them responsibility and authority, but also they have to be accountable for it. You know, so how do you establish that so that you're able to rely on the store and the store knows what to do and does what is helpful? And I think that's where the questions start to come. Yeah, I think in the marketing context, my advice would be, A, share information. Mm-hmm. But then that also requires that you have a team that is competent to do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. So recognize who is on the job training and who's a pro. Mm-hmm. And then cultivate those who are on the job training. I mean, cultivate everybody, but cultivate mm-hmm. those who are on the job training and also mm-hmm. let the pros do what they need to do because they are now informed. What mm-hmm. I have seen, and I think that's usually causes inefficiency is when it is not clear what kind of information to be shared and not to be shared. And it's very easy to assume that the information that you have is too sensitive or too this or Mm -hmm. too that, and then like Mm -hmm. hoard it. And that's just the recipe for inefficiency. You know, let's broaden this from consumer. Let's just say, suppose you've decided that your local sales offices are your self-organizing unit. You know, then, because then, you, you know, back to the information question, you have questions such as, uh, you know, I don't like micrometrics. I don't think they help people. They're kind of a micromanagement method. So I would think a sales office like that would need to be run to big metrics like its profitability, its revenue level. And, you know, I mean, you'd, you'd run to those things. On the other hand, those numbers, very often companies are too afraid to let those out. 
we have to secure them or we don't trust people to be responsible with them. On the other hand, there's nothing better than saying, hey, we're doing pretty good, but we're not quite profitable. We got to figure out this quarter how to make this happen. Oh my God, that's motivating within a within a self-organizing unit, if you will. Yeah, I, so, think, I, th- I think you're right that understanding what the unit is is pretty critical. It is. And I think maybe in a way, I'm, I'm thinking about it too, it's almost like there's the information at the boundaries, you know, mm. kind of old mathematical idea or software idea that it's kind of like, okay, we'll, we'll let whatever happens inside happen, but we need to know this information at the boundaries. And that is, you know, profitability or customer level service or things like that. Right. The other key word in what you wrote right up front was the idea of independent agents. Mm-hmm. There is no self-organizing if these entities mm-hmm. that are organizing aren't mm-hmm. independent and it isn't their own idea. Mm-hmm. That's another angle on management and organizational structure is that you need to mm-hmm. treat your pros as equals who mm-hmm. it's a peer-to-peer kind of a relationship, even though you yes. have some kind of an oversight. Mm-hmm. So you need to hire people that you are willing to Trust allow to be a peer. Well, I think about this a lot with like film sets and I loved being on the film set because you have your art department and what ended up ha- passing at the boundaries of the art department was I need this kind of thing to look like this or I see what you've built, but I needed to, you know, something else to happen. And they were the experts at making that happen. And so by giving them the ability to be the agent, which is, oh, you need that? Let me go figure it out. Right. They were able to be very active and I didn't have to waste a lot of time. And in that case, yes, we hired people we could trust. And because I could knew that they were trustworthy, I could say, this is a problem, fix, fix it for us and walk away and know that I didn't have to spend a lot of time worrying about it because they yeah. pulled off. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I want to do the flip side of that too, yeah. is that if you do that, then also be prepared for you to not know everything that needs to be done. That's true. Right? So yeah. then you kind of expect your empowered and competent team to be doing X. And if they're not doing X, it's probably because they're busy doing Y and you're not aware of what that is. Right. <laughs> well, and, and they may. I mean, this is, I, 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 I note in the uh, section of the book that one of the first things to do is we need to watch for self organization to naturally appear. Whoa, wow, I, that person just did this incredible thing. They did it on their own. I didn't know any of the details and I really liked the result. We need to think about stuff like that to observe it, make note of it, and then decide what it means. So I think is really important. And we can learn a lot from that because then you realize, well, I thought they should be doing X. They did Y and it was much better. And, right. uh, yeah, that's, yeah, right. that's, kind of, that's kind of the beauty of these kinds of things. So this is really good because it gives us a topic to come to perhaps next time. Yes. And that is the impact of this kind of a management structure on metrics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can conclude this episode here. I think it makes sense. Hopefully that's a stimulating, thoughtful idea. And by the way, I am collecting ideas around where self-organization might apply in marketing. I don't think it's all obvious and I don't think I have all the answers other than I think it's a really important potential for us to start playing with. Right on. Okay, so that's a request to uh, all of our listeners. If you have one, please chime in on Twitter or directly. All right. Well, thank you all. Thank you, Doug. Until next time. All right. Bye. Take care. 
That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.